0: I mentioned at the beginning that I was going to take a telescopic view of this passage. Um, this uh, this past Wednesday, I had breakfast with a friend, and uh, he's much smarter than I am. But we both have sort of a rudimentary interest in quantum physics and the cosmos and space and and that kind of stuff. And so we we were talking back and forth just about things we were you know that this kind of blew our minds about stars and planets and. You know, quarks and dark matter and all this stuff, and and uh, he said, "Well, have you seen have you seen the images from the new telescope that have come out?" And I was like, "Well, I didn't even know there was a new telescope that had come out." And he said, "Well, back on Christmas Day, two thousand twenty one, a new telescope named the James Webb Telescope was launched uh, in into space." And, and and from a engineering standpoint, it's a phenomenal. Uh, Uh, piece of of equipment that has, you know, a global collaboration of scientists around it. But what this satellite is able to do is much more than what the Hubble telescope has been doing. And we're seeing further and deeper and more detailed pictures of our universe. And so I got lost Wednesday afternoon for about three hours just on the NASA James Webb website, (laughs) just looking at these images and It's it's incredible. It really is incredible. And I was just moved to worship. You know, the 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 heavens declare the glory of the Lord. But what he what what they said is the first image started. This first images started coming back to scientists in July of last year. It's how long it took for it to unfold and get itself ready and positioned and take pictures. You know, we're light years away, so all that stuff it didn't just come like you know email to you, right? It just it comes you know light years away. So July of last year, we got the first image from the James Webb. Uh, telescope, and, they, and the scientist said it would be as if you put a grain of sand on the tip of your finger and put it out like that. That's the picture we got of how far out in the in the universe we saw. But the, because of the image capturing capabilities of this telescope they can zoom in to that little grain of sand and we can see the death and birth of stars we can see planets we can see the rings are planets we can see all this matter floating around the universe and it's amazing and all that data now is coming back through and artists are making renditions and we're starting to get a, a glimpse of the glory of our universe and I started thinking about this passage I know that seems like a weird connection But there's something that Paul, there's a, there's an image that Paul is, is trying to espouse in all of his letters. And that image is that a person who has faith in Christ becomes a man and woman who is in Christ. That your greatest uh, calling, your greatest uh, identity is that you are a man or a woman who is in Christ. You are under his shelter, under his redemption. Everything that God wants to give Jesus, he wants to give you. And so the, the life of faith is one of living in Christ. And that image is what Paul over and over in his letters is trying to get across to people. And, and every time I preach, I seem to do this all the time. I get, you know, y'all make fun of me for doing this, but I want you to have it seared in your mind you are in Christ. You do not want to be outside the umbrella of Christ's redemption. You want to be in Christ all the days of your life. And that image is what then in 6 through 11 that Paul zooms in on, which is called the humility or humiliation of Christ. And then through uh, 6 through 8 and then 9 through 11, he zooms back out, which is the exaltation of Christ. So we're going to take a telescopic look at what it means for you and I to be in Christ. Because what Paul is proposing is to the degree that you live in that identity and you understand that your your uh, congregant next to you is living in that you will live as Christ lived which is emptying himself, humbling himself, taking on the form of a servant. That's what that's what it's doing. So let's let's dive into this together. Verse five it says, have this mind among yourselves which is yours in Christ. This mind is one through four. Not living in vain conceits, uh, not cherishing your own desires above others, uh, giving deference and preference to other people. This mind, he wants you to have a mindset that is others-centered, that is full of humility and deference to one another. But he says that this mind is a present active thing, yours in Christ. So as you are in Christ, you have this mind. So what I'd like to do before we take this telescopic view, I want you to either rekindle your vision of being in Christ. Some of you, that picture of you in Christ might be fuzzy, might be cloudy, it might be faded. Some of you may have put that image in a box and put it up in the attic. It may be sitting staly on your bookshelf in some album. I wanna take just a few minutes. I wanna read a passage. And I want you, in however form you do this, in your mind's eye and in your emotions, I want you to connect afresh this morning with what it means for you to be in Christ. All right, so whatever you have to do, if you gotta bow your head, if you gotta close your eyes, you you gotta look up, if you gotta, whatever. I want you to sear this image in your mind because we're gonna zoom in on it in just a second. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins in which you once walked. In them. Do you see yourself? You're seated in Christ. This is not your own doing. This has nothing to do with your accolades, your education, your bank account, your family prestige. It is a gift from God, and you are in Him. Now, let's zoom in on what that looks like. Verse 6. Verse six through 11, there's a, there's, a, um, there's a decisive shift. We can pick up on a little bit in the English, but in the Greek, it's unmistakable. The way Paul writes his normal vernacular in his Greek, it shifts, and there's this almost poetic prose that happens in six through 11. There's, there's, there's parallelism, there's, there's symbolism, uh, and what this has caused a lot of scholars to say is, They think Paul broke out into song. This was one of the first ancient hymns of the early church because it's written very poetically. And it it wouldn't be shocking, right, if Paul is saying, hey, guys, here's here's how I want you to live in Christ. And then because he's so overwhelmed with that image of himself being in Christ, he just breaks out in song and says, verses six through 11, and that's how it reads. So let's look at it. Let's first look at verses six, seven, and eight. He says, Who, Christ, though he was in the form of God, did not account equality with God a thing to be grasped. But he emptied himself by taking on the form of a servant, being born in likeness of men, and being found in the human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Three ways that he says Christ uh, emptied himself, and we zoom in on this, what it means for him to be humiliated uh, and, and show us where we are in him. Verse six, though he was in the form of God, he did not account equality with God, a thing to be grasped. More literally, Christ had the divine attributes and he did not think that those attributes were worthy to be exploited. Meaning he, he, he came to earth, took on a human form, but he did not exploit who he was in the form of God. Okay, it says he emptied himself. We're gonna talk about that in a second. But this would have been very, very uh, anti, anti-cultural to the Philippian church. As I told you a couple weeks ago, the church in Philippi was a Roman colony where retired Roman soldiers, Roman uh, leaders went to, to live in their retirement. So they, and they loved their status. They loved to be called a centurion or, a, uh, or a, uh, you know, whatever their title was. Listen to this, the great rulers, heroes, and gods of the citizens of Philippi were famous for exploiting their positions of power. When did the emperors Caligula and Nero, the great conqueror Alexander the Great, or the gods Apollo and Zeus, ever not regard their positions as advantages to exploit? But the one existing in the form of God said no to selfish exploitation of his position in the form of God, and he said yes to the form of a servant, If anyone could exploit his status, it would have been the son of God, and he didn't. How much more should we avoid this arrogance? Your degrees, your position, your bank account, your family, your accomplishments, they're not for your exploitation. Lay them aside. The one thing that matters is that you are in Christ, And so here he gives us the first model that Jesus did not even consider equality with God something to be exploited. Verse seven, but instead he emptied himself, taking the form of a servant and being born in the likeness of men. He took on human flesh. He emptied himself. Scholars have debated for centuries and there's been all kind of haywires, heresies that have come from this. What did he empty himself of? Well, he didn't stop being God, he laid that aside. Think about this, when he was on the earth, he had flesh and blood, he ate, drank, slept, cried, laughed, but then there's these moments when a storm comes up and it's terrifying his disciples and he speaks to H2O and to wind and says, be still. And they recognize the voice of their creator. He took the cells of a person's eyes and reconfigured them on the spot so they would be healed. He put some jars of water, and by the time he walked over there, it was aged fine wine. Why? Because he didn't just empty himself fully of his divinity. He didn't exploit it. And every time those divine acts were used, it was in the service of someone else. Jesus, by choice, emptied himself of all that form of God and took on a form of a man. He emptied himself. He would say, The Son of Man came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. He didn't consider his form of God to be exploited. He emptied himself by becoming a man, verse 8. And being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. He had the full experience as a human, the full experience, even death. Here, scholars parallel the juxtaposition of the first Adam, created Adam, and what the scriptures call the second Adam or the last Adam. What the first Adam failed to do, the second Adam, Christ, did fully. Adam wanted to be God and took the fruit, the forbidden fruit, trying to be God. The second Adam laid aside his form of, God, God, of, of being God. The first Adam, his disobedience led to death. The second Adam's obedience led to death to undo the disobedience of the first Adam. And Paul makes it even more clear that he didn't just suffer the same death that all humans It was death on a cross. Why does Paul add this? Because to the Philippian, the Roman citizens of Philippi, they would know that Rome created the most cruel and horrible punishment the world has known. In fact, the emperor Cicero called death on a cross a most cruel and disgusting punishment. The cross is the worst extreme of the tortures inflicted upon slaves. This is the Son of God on a cross, a Roman cross. But the Jews, too, would have connected with this. The Jewish law said that anyone that is hung on a tree is cursed by God. So you, here you have the Son of God dying on a Roman cross, cursed by God. Even death on a cross. Now, there's a pregnant pause in the passage here, and it's the conjunction therefore. Whenever a writer puts a therefore in, it means I'm about to transition, which means before I transition, there's a pause that you need to pay attention to. And I think we would do well to pause here and let this humiliation of the Son of God on a cross give birth to something very powerful. Listen, we're gonna sing this song in just a minute. This is our final song after communion. Listen to the refrain that we're gonna sing. This, the power of the cross. Christ became sin for us. Took the blame, bore the wrath. We stand forgiven at the cross. Friend, what Paul is saying to the church in Philippi and the church in Lexington is your coming ground with each other is you are all forgiven sinners. The cross of Christ. All right, unpause. Now the therefore. Because we've just zoomed into that image of what it means to be in Christ in the humiliation of Christ. And now let's zoom out and see the exaltation of Christ. Verse nine. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. The same emptying that led to the cross is the basis for God's exalting for him. He is the servant and he is exalted. The word that Paul uses here is highly exalted. In the, in the Greek, it's actually translated super exalted. That just sounds kind of weird, super exalted. But I had, a, I had a field day with this in my heart this week. We, we, we know that Paul was the human writer of this letter, but we all know the eternal writer of this letter was the Holy Spirit. And the Holy Spirit reserved a word that's used nowhere else in the Bible for one person, Jesus Christ, and that's the word he chose for super exalted. There is not another name that's super exalted in the world. Not yours, not Hamas, not Israel, not sex, not money, not prestige, not anything else you can think of. There is not another name that gets that label of super exalted. That name's reserved for Jesus Christ. What is that name? We'll see in a second. God graciously gave him this. Kent Hughes says this. As we know, Christ Jesus has lots of names. To highlight a few, he's called Emmanuel, Wonderful Counselor, Prince of Peace, The Almighty, Ancient of Days, The Door, The Shepherd, The Bread of Life, The Lamb, The Rock, The Bridegroom, The Alpha, The Omega. What is this mysterious name in Philippians 2 that Paul is talking about? And the name is Lord. This is the Greek word "Kyrios." which is the Greek form of Yahweh. Don't miss this. When, when Moses was in the desert of Midian, and God came to him in the burning bush and he said, hey Moses, it's time to go back to Egypt and liberate my people. <laughs> Moses is like, seriously God, I'm 66 years old. I got kicked out of that place for murdering an Egyptian. I've been in this desert for 40 years this is gonna be impossible. In fact, who, who do I tell them is sent me on this mission? God says, you tell them, I am sent me to you. That word is Yahweh. I am who I am. The personal name of God. All through the scriptures, the passage that Janie read for us. Isaiah, from Isaiah 40 to Isaiah 48 if you, want, if you want to see this just unpacked in a prophet, the number of times he talks about the Lord, Yahweh, being the deliverer of God's people. And here, Paul makes the, the audacious claim that this suffering servant, clothed in frail humanity on a wooden cross, is Yahweh. Friends, you want power, you want confidence. You want humility? See yourself in that relationship. And that's why he says that at the name of Jesus, every knee in heaven, on earth, and under the earth, and every tongue will confess what? Jesus Christ is Lord. We're getting ready to, we, we celebrate the Lord's Supper every week here. And it, it's, it's amazing to me how every sermon just lands right here. But let me, let me, let me, let me super connect this for you. <laughs> you know, the, the gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, they're, they're what we call synoptic or, or harmonious. They, they work together to tell us the story of Jesus's life and work. Well, Luke and John do something really unique with this the night that Jesus gave the Lord's Supper, which is the night before he was uh, betrayed and, and went to the cross, okay? And what, what, what they say is that they had supper, okay? We're, we're gonna celebrate. Mark's gonna set the table up and he says, this is my body, which is for you, and this is the blood of the new covenant given for the forgiveness of sins. And he had this meal with the disciples, Okay, and Luke tells us that after supper, Jesus tells them, one of you is gonna betray me. And that after they had this meal, the disciples start having this feud with each other. They start, they start debating who's the better of the 12. They start wondering who's, which one's the rascal, which one's gonna be the right. And they start saying, well, I'm gonna be at the left hand, I'm gonna be at the right hand, and the sons of thunder are doing this. And they're having this, like, the, anti, the antithesis of Philippians 2. They got all kind of vain conceit. They're all looking out for their own interests. That's what Luke tells us was going on. And then John tells us that Jesus got up from supper and he took off his outer garments and stripped himself down to what would have been equivalent of a slave's outfit. And he got a basin of water and a towel and he got down at the feet of the men who were just arguing that he created them and he started wiping off the dirt that he created himself and he starts wiping their dust off their feet. The son of God who laid aside his glory as God, now is a servant on the ground, wiping these bickering disciples' feet. And this is what John says. When he had washed their feet, he put back on his outer garments and resumed his place at the table. And he said to them, do you understand what I've done to you? You call me teacher and Lord, and you're right, for so I am. If I then, your Lord and teacher, have washed your feet, you also to wash one another's feet. For I have given you an example that you also should do just as I have done. Truly, truly, I say to you, a servant is not greater than his master. (laughs) You remember what Peter did in that moment? You're going to wash my feet, Jesus. I should be washing yours. Peter, if you don't let me wash your feet, you have no part of me. Oh, okay, well, in that case, wash my whole body. Peter, you're not getting it. I'm not talking about this example of washing your feet. I'm talking about a a man of prestige and power humbling himself to give his life away so that others might know God. Peter, that's exactly what you're gonna have to do for the rest of your life. Do you understand this? And Peter finally got it the disciples finally got and you know you know how history unfolds those 11 disciples gave their life in service to Christ the Lord and friends we're here in 2023 because that movement has not stopped Jesus Christ is Lord he is it's not up for debate and one day when he comes back as we'll say here eat this bread drink this cup Until he comes back. Until that day, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. And Jesus said, when that day comes, I will share this meal with all those who have bowed their knee and confessed with their mouth that Jesus Christ is Lord. And until that day, we have this meal together. So, let's come to the table together and let's eat it with joy. I'll pray and then I'll transition us to the Lord's prayer and then we'll come to the table. Father, I pray that these this image would be seared in our minds and our hearts for the every day of our life, that we would know our right position is in Christ. And there can be no higher position because you have exalted Christ with a name that is above every name. He is Lord. He is risen from the dead, and he is Lord. Every knee will bow and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord, oh God. Help us to do that in our minds and in our lives. And so, Lord Christ, we now pray as you taught us to pray. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread and forgive us our debts